Father, we go outside and look up and we see light. We see light brilliant and we see light abundant. But we know looking at the sun, we don't worship the sun. The light given from that celestial body does not save anybody. But Father, Your Son did come in the light, brought light. Father, the light that Your Son brought does save. Father, we need help in living well. Having received the light, Father, we need help in being obedient. We need help in being loving. We need help in being kind and generous and patient with our brothers and sisters. Father, we need help in understanding Your Word rightly. Father, we who stand here need help in proclaiming Your Word rightly. And Father, we ask for all of that help by the help of Your Spirit. Father, we can't do it without Your Spirit. Father, we ask for help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good morning. We will be in Romans chapter 16 this morning. Romans chapter 16, starting at verse 17. I will read through verse 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. All right, Paul's wrapping up this letter to the church at Rome. This is not a church that has problems like other churches that he writes to. So in our overview of what uh, I want to start with here, he's writing to a church that if you look at chapter 1, verse 8, he says about this church that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. (laughs) Would that our church could have that statement made about us? He also says right in this passage here in verse 19, your obedience is known to all. So this church is known as being faithful. This church is known as being obedient. We really don't see in the letter that he's really writing to refute any error that they're engaging in or or anything that's going on there. What he is doing here is he is issuing some preventive medicine, though, to the church. When might the medicine be needed? The day they get the letter and have it read, maybe. Maybe the day after. Maybe the week after. Maybe the month after. Because he says, watch out. Keep your eyes open for what might come. Now, we know know that it is not merely a might coming. We know that it will come. These things happening here 
that he describes in this passage are going to come. Those doors don't keep that out of here. What he's writing about here, every church has to watch out for. I don't care how good your doctrine or how good your practice is, you have to watch out for what Paul tells this church, which when you read this letter at the beginning and the end, again, think if, think if, Paul, <laughs> if Paul were here and were here for a year, could he say these things about this church? Well, if he could, he would still say this. Because whether somebody comes in new or whether somebody's already here, this issue might arise within a church. And those of us who've been around long enough know that it's going to happen. It will. At some level, at some time, with some person, in some way, this is going to happen. So when it does happen, and that's why I want, I want to look at it from that perspective, let's assume that things are good today, here. And let's look going forward, not just to tomorrow, but let's look going forward to 11 o'clock, 12.30, 5 o'clock today, 9 o'clock today. Paul wants us to watch out. Not just way out in the future. Paul wants the Roman church to watch out today, even though they don't appear to have any of these issues happening now. This is for their spiritual back pocket in order that they be ready when it does come because it will come. There are, there, it's going to happen. So we need to be ready when it does happen. And you look, at, you look at this passage and you look at what he says about the church in Rome. Again, their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Their obedience is known to all. 2,000 years ago almost he writes that. What happened? <laughs> what happened to that church? We know from church history we can, we can follow the, the decline of the church in Rome. That one's an easy one. But what happened? What started it? Something started it. Not just something, somebody started it. Somebody had an idea about something within that church. This church... The church in Rome, can you say this about that church in Rome today, what we know as the Roman Catholic Church? Now, we know that there, is, there are small Christian churches in Rome, but what, what started here in Rome? What happened? Why, why did they get from there to where they are now? And, and I don't say what I say about Roman Catholicism just to bash Roman Catholicism. I say what I say about it because I have a responsibility as an elder to teach you all sound doctrine and to contradict those who refute it. It's not that I hate Roman Catholics when I say what I say about Catholicism. I love Roman Catholics. I hate what is evil. I hate teaching that damns people. I don't want to see Roman Catholics go to hell. But I mean, even in the craziness of you see that, that what's Roman Catholicism now and whatever the Pope Pope Francis says and does, I mean, popes from a hundred years ago wouldn't recognize the Roman Catholic Church of today. But how did they get there? It happened because of ideas. R.C. Sproul has a book, it's a philosophical book, but it's entitled The Consequences of Ideas. Our ideas, what we think, end up being what we say and what we practice, and they're coming from our heart, 
and it ends up being how people live. It is. What we think will result in how we live, in how we engage the brethren, in how we interpret our Bibles, in how we believe this doctrine or that doctrine, or we don't believe this doctrine or that doctrine. So how we think matters. When, when he writes here about people who cause divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, those came from people's minds. They came from what people were thinking. They came from what people were doing. And we do what we think. We do what we believe about any doctrine. Everybody has doctrines about everything. And even if people say, I don't have any doctrine but Jesus, that's a doctrine. <laughs> because then you have to get into, okay, what is your doctrine of Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? What does Jesus require of his people? What did Jesus do on your behalf? So everybody's got doctrine. And he says here, watch out. Because there are going to people, be people who cause divisions and they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they've been taught. Had he taught the church at Rome? Well, not, at least not directly because he hadn't been there yet. We know from the letter that he hadn't been there yet. He'd been wanting to go there to visit them. And he says, I want to stop in on my way to Spain and, and see you guys. But what about the church at Corinth? Spent 18 months at the church in Corinth. He taught the church at Corinth plenty. And we know from, especially from 1 Corinthians, that there were issues with this church that he had taught. We know from the letter to the Galatians, there were issues with a church that he had taught. What? Ephesus. Okay, you can go to Acts and look at what Paul's experience is in Ephesus and with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. What about Ephesus? What happened to the church in Ephesus? How did the church in Ephesus get from where it is in the letter to the Ephesians into where then Paul is writing Timothy, telling him certain things that need to be instructed to the church in Ephesus? Then you get out to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2, you've got Jesus telling them, you guys have lost your first love. How did they get there? How do you get from point A where you're doing well to point B where you're not? Well, one way is to not pay attention to what Paul has said here in this appeal. It's not a command. It's not an imperative. But it really has the force of an imperative. He wants them to do this. He doesn't say thou shalt. But he says, I appeal to you. He really wants them to do this because he knows the dangers here. He knows that if they don't pay attention to this, they could end up like what we know Corinth ended up, where if Ephesus got, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 2, where the church in Rome got to where it, it got not too long after the apostolic times, where's the church in Ephesus today? <laughs> Ephesus really doesn't exist today. <laughs> How about the church in Corinth? Say what you want to about the church in Corinth. He speaks pretty highly about the church in Corinth. Calls these guys brothers 20 times in the letter. Talks about them very highly in chapter 1. 
the first eight verses. How did they get there? We don't want to adopt the attitude, well, that could never happen to us. Because you know what? Every apostate church has always had that attitude. Every apostate person has had that attitude. People who sat in this room since we moved here in 2014 had that attitude. They were good to go. You know, it's only those people out there that walk away. Those of us who've been here since 2014, think about the people you know who've walked away. Now, they may have walked away for different reasons. Now, we know, I, I know doctrinally, that if they walk away from, from Christ, they were never Christians in the first place. However, we've got warnings in our Bibles for reasons. These are not The warnings in Hebrews are not addressed to the lost. This passage is not addressed to the lost. This passage is addressed to people like you and I sitting in rooms like this who meet on the Lord's Day, who, who profess to be Christians, who profess to be a church that's biblical. This is not directed toward the other guy. This is directed toward us. This is something that we just can't think that, that we've got this, this, this inoculation that will keep this from happening here because as we pat ourselves on the back, we're Grace Community Church, and this would never happen here. Be careful. Be careful. Remember, the people who've walked away thought that about themselves too. Because they may have been sitting in this room and, and see somebody walk away and go, oh, thank God that'll never happen to me. And then they walk away themselves. Or churches. You, you think about, about churches or, or you know, denominations. We can get into whether or not that's biblical or not, but it's the reality. What happens? How do denominations go that way? It's because somebody had an idea or some guys had an idea. I think, about, I think about the part of Michigan that uh, Brother Conway is from, Southwest Michigan. Christian Reformed Church. The denomination of Louis Burkhoff, who wrote one of the classics of systematic theology from a Reformed perspective in the, in, in the earlier part of the 20th century. Christian Reformed Church, all things considered concerning the doctrine of salvation and, and practice, other than where we would differ on things like who you baptize. But I mean, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology is one of the classics in the field. The Christian Reform denomination, the denomination of Louis Burkhoff, the denomination of William Hendrickson, who's written much of a great New Testament commentary, who's written one of the classics in the commentary field on the book of Revelation, More Than Conquerors. These guys were ordained in the Christian Reformed Church. The Christian Reformed Church has gone off the rails. Why? How? Because they didn't pay attention to this. Or people might pay attention to this and they might not engage in obeying this because they have this unbiblical idea of what love is. Well, we can't, we can't deny this kind of behavior or call people to account for this kind of behavior concerning this or that because that's unloving. 
you know it as well as I do. A lot of people, if they know one verse besides John 3.16, it's Matthew 7.1, judge not lest ye be judged. Well, you can't judge that person for engaging in adulterous behavior. Who are you to judge? Take the log out of your own eye first. Amen. Yes, let's take the log out of our own eye. And I forgot to bring the Bible with me that I wrote down a quote from Tim, probably that he said eight or nine years ago, because he said, Matthew 7.1 never says that you leave the speck in your brother's eye. Both of those should happen. But the thing is, people only concentrate on taking the log out. Well, then we never get the speck out. And you know what? Specks turn into bigger specks and turn into logs. And then doctrine changes. That's how denominations and churches end up bracing things like homosexuality is acceptable behavior for a Christian. Well, because it's all about the love. The issue is, it's not just all about the love, it's about what the Bible says about love. We don't look at love, or at least we shouldn't, from a man-centered perspective. We look at love from the way the Bible describes love. And the Bible does not describe endorsing sinful behavior as loving. Or changing the definition of sin to match cultural norms. That's not loving. The world might say that's loving to the people who are engaging in the sin, but the Scripture would never say that that is loving toward the God who gave us the Word in the first place, which defines what sin is. The issue is, do we love God enough to tell people what God says about behavior and even more so, do we love God enough to tell ourselves what God says about our behavior? Do we? But you, you, you can just look around long enough when you're around long enough and see where people go, how people, how churches, individuals, pastors go down this road or that road because they dare not say no to a certain behavior because it's seen as unloving. Jesus said no to certain things. Jesus said no to certain doctrines. Look at his encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jews. How many of those ended up being doctrinal at the end of the day? Pretty much all of them because it was all about the doctrine of himself. They weren't willing to accept who he was as he was revealing himself to them. When he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's doctrinal. And they weren't willing to accept that doctrine. And it's unloving to say to a Jew, it's okay not to accept Jesus because you're a Jew. That is unloving. Jesus says, if you don't receive me, you don't receive the one who sent me. That's not unloving toward a Jew. Jesus, a Jew, said that. John says that same thing in, in 1 John 5. We have to define what we believe based upon the Word of God, not by our experience. Your experience does not define truth. You may know somebody who is Jewish, Roman Catholic, Mormon, and they might be more loving than the most loving Christian you know. 
but they're only loving in a worldly way. They are not loving in the way that God wants them to love because they're not loving out of faith. My parents were very loving. But my parents were as lost as that chair. My mother looked Cheryl and, and, and myself in the eye 20 some years ago and said, I hate God. One of my friends in the prison ministry went to evangelize my mother while she was in the hospital on her deathbed. He spent almost two hours with her and he said, Jeff, I've never seen somebody whose heart is so hard. But she loved me. She was a great mom in that sense. But what she did did not please God because without faith it is impossible to please God. So we can't, we can't just let our experience say, well, so-and-so is loving or, or this, this homosexual couple is loving. They love each other. Isn't that all that matters? Right now, that's what Catholicism says. The Catholicism of 2023 the Catholicism of 1923 never would have said that. But that's, that's taking cultural, environmental things and then imposing that upon the Scripture and the teaching of God's people as truth. Truth doesn't change over time. At least biblical truth doesn't change over time. We know scientific truth changes all the time. In my lifetime, I can't tell you how many times science has decided whether or not butter is good for me. <laughs> but what this book says, there's no new truth coming out of this book. It's all old truth, as Spurgeon would have said. And it's up to us to receive it as it is. And, and in this passage, Paul wants his people in Rome, whom he has not yet met, to pay attention to what they believe. Because what they believe will result in what they practice. Whatever any of us in this room believe about anything is going to result in how we live. If we have an attitude toward someone or a group of people, that's going to affect how we live. If we're, go if we're going to have an attitude toward our boss, we're going to have an attitude toward people of a different political persuasion who may sit in this room. That's going to affect how we live. No matter what we do in our lives, everything that we do, everything that we do is an outflow of what we believe and what we think. And the challenge is, are we living and are we believing, are we acting based upon what Scripture says and Scripture alone? That doctrine of sola scriptura matters. One of the fundamental issues of the Reformation is the issue of authority. What authority binds the church? The Reformer said Scripture and Scripture alone. Catholicism says Scripture and, and sacred tradition and the teaching authority of the magisterium as headed by the Pope and the bishops. As soon as you put that and in there, and what we see today in much of what professes to be Christianity, the and is experience. 
or private revelation, things that are subjective, outside Scripture. Well, I had this experience, and therefore it's true. I spent 23 minutes in hell, that sort of thing. I had this experience, therefore it's true. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> thing is, you got this book here that defines such truths. I don't care what your experience is if it butts up and conflicts what's in this book. I, don't, I shouldn't care what my experience is if it conflicts with what's in this book. This book is a book of doctrine from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22. And we are supposed to teach you the whole counsel of this book. And Paul, in this passage, wants to tell this church, which is doing well. You, know, you think about something else. We don't think the way that Paul thinks. <laughs> because Paul says in chapter 1, I want to go there and preach the gospel to you guys. Now, you might scratch your head and go, this church is doing well. Why does he want to preach the gospel to a church that's doing well? That's because even churches that do well still need to hear the gospel. You never outgrow the simplicity and the necessity and the wonder of the gospel. Ever. I mean, I know people have told me, I don't need to hear preaching on sin anymore. Yes, you do. <laughs> Yes, we do. Yes, I do. That's why Paul wants to go and tell the church in Rome the gospel. Because the gospel never becomes irrelevant in the life. We never, we never move on from that. Or at least we shouldn't move on from that. The gospel is always relevant. The necessity of, just like the lost need to hear the gospel, the saved need to hear the gospel. You still need to hear what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners, including yourself, not just the lost. We need to be reminded of that. Because what happens when we don't? Well, we start forgetting. Then we start thinking differently. Then we start ignoring what Paul says here in the passage. And then you end up with homosexual female pastors. That's how you get there. So this sort of thing matters. And he wants this church to hear it. Whether these people come from within or walking off the street after today and then become part of us from within. We know from Jude. Jonathan's been preaching through Jude. The ungodly men. How did they get there? Did they come in with trumpets and brass bands? Jude said they crept in unnoticed. They looked just like everyone else. They sounded just like everyone else. But then over time, their lives proved how ungodly they were. How many times does he call those people ungodly in those 25 verses of Jude? More than you might think. But they come in, and they get here. And we need to have a foundation whereby we can recognize. Because what, what do people who want to cause divisions Create obstacles. Paul, Paul uses this word obstacles. Other translations talk about a stumbling block. Okay, a, 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 a really big speed bump. You know, some of the speed bumps around town, you really don't have to hardly slow down to go over them. 
They just put one, they just put something on the street they repaved near us, and you can hardly creep over it without having your teeth rattled around in your mouth. But that's what he's talking about here. Speed bumps, things that get in the way, things that slow you down, things that distract you, things that get your mind off where your mind is supposed to be. That's what happens because what they will do is they will come in and they will speak something which contains some truth and it sounds palatable, but it doesn't contain the entirety of truth. But it sounds good. And they sound, and it sounds good in many ways because of what he talks about here in verse 18. They're smooth talkers. They're eloquent. They're kind. They're loving. Flattery. When he says flattery here in verse 18, that's the same word. That's the only time that word gets translated as flattery in the ESV. It's primarily translated as blessing. You read Revelation 5 and it's speaking about Christ, the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. When it talks about honor and glory and blessing being ascribed to Him, same word. Well, why would that word be translated here as flattery? Well, because that word there that gets translated as blessing in Revelation 5 is the word that we would bring into English as eulogy. It's eulogia. It's speaking highly about somebody. You know, at funerals, they give eulogies about the deceased. What he's talking about here, these people come in and they speak well of you. They build you up. They encourage you. They speak well of you. They speak well of the church. But it's meant to deceive. And we need to have our eyes, our ears open by being watchful. How many times in your Bible do we have the charge to keep watch or to be watchful. Why? Because Satan and his demons never sleep. They don't take a day off. Is he not going to and fro like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Always. And if he's already got some churches, some people in his hand through deceit, what does he want to do? We tend to think that Satan thinks rationally. He doesn't. <laughs> he knows he's defeated, but he's not willing to live like that. So he's still fighting, even though the battle's been won. So what does he do? Why not go after the Roman church? Did he go after the Roman church? History has shown he did. Did he go after the Corinthian church? History has shown he did. Did he go after the Ephesian church? History has shown he did. Is he going to go after Grace Community Church? And that door is not going to keep him out of here. We just need to recognize when he's here. When his, when his minions are here. Because he uses people. He uses people who make friendships with us. He uses people who appear very loving and kind and generous and know their doctrine. He uses that which will not raise our eyebrows. He uses that which looks, looks by all outward appearances at the beginning to be one of us. We need to have our eyes open. Watch out. Keep your eyes open. Now, we don't, we don't live our lives in constant fear of this. We don't live our lives as paranoid people. 
but we just need to be paying attention. We can't adopt an attitude that it ain't going to happen here. If he says this about this church in Rome, their faith's proclaimed in all the world, your obedience is known to all, we better pay attention to what he says too. Because what happens when these people do this, it says they deceive the hearts of the naive. The innocent, the simple. Maybe, maybe you don't have a handle on all the doctrines and everything that you would like to have. And that's okay at one level. But over time, you should become a little more mature. Learn some stuff. Okay? The fundamental doctrine, of course, is faith. Because <laughs> you get back to the church in Ephesus. You've lost your first love. Because even there in Ephesus, Revelation 2, he commends them for doctrinal soundness. But they've got a problem because they've lost their first love. And that's a big problem. So what do you do? Well, you're supposed to do both. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Jesus. If you don't have love for Jesus, at the end of the day, He's going to tell you you're like the Ephesians. You've lost your first love. Even as your doctrine might be, as I kept hearing a chaplain say, your doctrine might be as straight as an arrow, and your life may be as dead as that arrow. Because the doctrine you need to have a handle on is Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done for you. Have you trusted Him? You turn from your sin and you turn to Him in faith. If that doesn't happen, <laughs> you have no foundation for anything at the end of the day. So don't be naive. You know, you've got that passage in Scripture that talks about being as, as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Those are not contradictory. Christians are supposed to be wise. Isn't there wisdom given to Christians at regeneration? What is the fear of the Lord the beginning of? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is a gift given to you at regeneration. Jeremiah 32.40 do you fear the Lord? Do you acknowledge in your heart who the Lord is? Do you, have a, do you have that sense of awe about who the Lord is? About who Jesus Christ is? About what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do? We sing that song, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. I know the print up there says A-W-F-U-L. <laughs> But it's really A-W-E-F-U-L. Do we have an awe, A-W-E, for Jesus Christ? Do we have a wow factor about who He is and what He's done? You see, you see people falling down before Him. Why? Because of who He is. And He tells them, fear not. But he also tells them to fear. <laughs> Two different kinds of fear here. We don't need to be afraid of him in the sense of judgment. 1 John 4.18 tells us that. But have we adopted 
the awe. You know, we've cheapened the use of the word awesome in our day. People, people will say that tacos are awesome. They might be tasty, but they're not awesome. The triune God is awesome. Father, Son, and Spirit, awesome. They are worthy of awe. They are worthy of our wow factor at who God is, who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Spirit is. That's a doctrine. The fear of the Lord is a doctrine. What, what was Abraham saying when he was afraid when he, when he encounters the king with his wife Sarah? There's no fear of the Lord in this place. And he's right. There's no fear of the Lord out there. That's why people do what they do. That's why people come in and do what Paul says here in verses 17 and 18. Because they don't fear the Lord. They don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is dogmatic on that here. They're not just having a bad theological day. They don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. What do they serve? Or who do they serve? They serve themselves. They serve their own appetites. As he would say elsewhere, their God is their belly. They're feeding themselves. It's all about self-absorption. Self-glorification. Not about the glorification of Jesus Christ. And he wants this church that's doing well to pay attention to it. Now, verse 20. <clears throat> the God of peace. It's sort of interesting what he says here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Doesn't that seem a little ironic or a little bit head-scratching? The God of peace is going to crush <laughs> yeah, he is. Now, we know that in one sense he did at the cross. The commentators will disagree about what this means here and the, the time in which Paul is applying this. The majority of the commentators will say that this is, this is concerning the present application only of what might happen here in Rome. Okay. But, but I'm minded, while that may be true, I don't think we can rule out that really he's talking about when Jesus comes back. Now, the some of the commentators will say, well, it says here, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yeah, it does say that. <laughs> However, did Jesus Christ say, I'm coming back in a long time? Okay, get comfortable. It's going to be 40,000 years before I come back. What does he say four times in the book of Revelation? I come quickly, or I come soon. Revelation 3, he says it once. Revelation 22, he says it three times. I am coming soon. He gets to define what soon is, not us. And when he says he's coming soon, he's coming soon. And when the Spirit says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, there's no problem with this being Christ's return. Can't you wait until the God of peace crushes Satan once and for all? He's no longer an element in our lives. But what about this God of peace? Paul uses this God of peace 
multiple times. Paul uses, actually, he used it earlier in this chapter. May the God of peace be with you all, chapter 15, verse 33. He uses it in Philippians 4, he uses it in 1 Thessalonians 5. The writer of Hebrews, Paul, we don't know, uses it in Hebrews 13, 20. The God of peace. The God of peace crushes? Yes. Isaiah 53 says the God of peace crushes. It was the God of peace's will to crush His own Son. We, 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 we get this in our head. We, we, we're probably thinking right away that He's referring back. There's a reference back to the start of this. Where is it? Genesis 3.15. What's the seed of the woman going to do? It's going to crush the head of the serpent. Your Bible might say bruise, but it has the sense of crushing. You see throughout Scripture, when God's enemies are destroyed, more than once you see there being an element of the Scripture saying they are crushed. We think, because we, we look at this through 21st century eyes, and we get a bruise. Okay, you know, you walk around and you hit your thigh on the corner of that sharp table and you got this big old bruise that's there for 10 days. But what happens? It goes away and everything's okay after that. That's not what he's talking about here. This is not just a mere bruise. This is a crushing. A, a once-for-all final crushing. And that's how you get peace. Through the crushing of evil. Through the crushing of the devil. There, there, I, I read an essay almost 20 years ago by Jim Hamilton from Southern Seminary that was very helpful to me on this. It's called The, the Skull-Crushing Seed of the Woman, talking about Jesus. Now, that then became part of a book that Hamilton wrote called God's Salvation Through Judgment. Because salvation comes through judgment. It does. And, and you think about what Jesus has done. The seed of the woman. Jesus Christ will crush will crush the head of the serpent when finally when Jesus comes back on the clouds in the same way that he left Acts chapter 1 but what does it mean to have peace we know we know that Romans 5:1 if we'd read back 11 chapters Paul says Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have peace? We tend to look at peace in a worldly sense. We tend to look at peace as just a matter of two opposing parties who are hostile to each other, not shooting at each other. You tell me, based upon what we know now, <laughs> was there peace in the middle of East three months ago before the guns started? No, there was not peace. They just weren't shooting at each other. Now, the world may say that's peace, but two parties which are in conflict with each other are not at biblical peace. We really get the, the concept of peace better probably from our Old Testaments in the concept of shalom. Okay, The way things are supposed to be, when things are whole, when they're right, when there is no conflict between the two. We know that Romans 8, earlier in this letter, Paul says those who have their mind set on the flesh are what? Hostile to God or at enmity with God. 
Why? Because they have a problem with God. But what happens when you're saved? God gives you faith. God gives you repentance. The hostility is gone. You're no longer an enemy of God. You are now a friend of God. And now you have peace. We know that there's going to be a different sense of peace in the age to come because we won't have this battle with flesh that we have now. The ongoing issues that we have. So we have positional peace. We have this relationship that is no longer that of two opposing parties or two enemies that we had before we were born again. But we, we have peace now. And I, and I guess I would pose the question, have you really accepted that peace that you have? Are you living your life in a manner that shows that you have peace with God? That the relationship is the way it should be. You're no longer hostile. Or are you thinking that God is some, some guy out there at the end of the day who's, who's, still looking to, who's still looking to take you out? Or have you embraced the fact that Jesus Christ has you secure in His hand? And He loves you. He loves you now. And if He loves you now in His hand, He has loved you from all eternity. Are you living your life with that peace? Not living your life waiting, waiting for the lightning bolt to come. Are you embracing what He has given you as a free gift? Are you resting? I go back to my sermon from a couple months ago. Are you resting? Are you, re are you resting or are you thrashing around all the time? You know what it's like to have sleep that is restful and sleep that isn't. You know what it's like when it's whatever o'clock in the morning you get up at and you have not rested well. But you also know what it's like to rest well. But you only rest well because of what the God of peace has done through the work of His Son. Have you embraced fully or have you just accepted it up here as an intellectual fact? Or are you living what you know to be true? I go back to, you live what you believe. And if you believe that God is still looking for you to take you out even as a Christian, you're not going to be living your life as a Christian the way that God wants you to live your life as a Christian. Live your life knowing Believing, acting out, taking comfort in what Jesus Christ has done for you by giving you peace with God. What other, what other peace really matters? There is no other peace that really matters. And the God of peace will finally, in time and space, consummate the crushing of the devil. And what a day that will be, eh? And then he pronounces his usual benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I, do, I don't want us to, 
I don't want us to walk away from a message like this again feeling that we have to be scared of the people in verses 17 and 18. But I want us to be watchful and to be aware and to be ready when they come or when they manifest from within us. Just keep your eyes. Keep your spiritual eyes open. Brethren, let's pray. Father, Father, we thank You that we have peace. Father, what a wonderful gift You've given us. Father, we need help. We need help in living, knowing that we have peace with God. Knowing what Jesus, Your Son, has done for us. Knowing that we are no longer enemies, but we are friends. Father, help us. Help us to keep our eyes open. Father, help us to not be paranoid, but just help us to keep our eyes open and be aware and to be watchful. In Christ's name, amen.